Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast with who else but your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings with two B's on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin at Jason LK on the old Twitter. Now today is very exciting for me as I welcome uh, a Brit that is joining me on the show and a Brit that's not just joining me but also crushing it in SF. It is of course Fred Stephen Smith, founder at Rainforest QA, which if you listen to 20 Minute VC with Byron Dieter included in the show notes, you will remember he discussed them and their amazing trajectory and then as a result Bessemer's investment in them and so for Rainforest QA first it's essentially a QA as a service making it fast and easy to test your web app in multiple browsers and they're backed by some of the best in the business as we said there Byron Dieter at Bessemer our own Jason Lemkin Y Combinator previous guest Chris Duggan at Betterworks and even Mark Benioff just to name a few and as for Fred he's the man at the helm as co-founder and CEO and absolutely smashing it as I said. Now I do have to warn you if you're listening to this with children, actually why would you subject your kids to listen to the Sasta podcast? Uh, <laughs> that seems a little tough parenting. Anyway, if you are then maybe cover their ears. The episode does feature a little light swearing uh, of, but on behalf of Fred of course. So without further ado I'm delighted to welcome Fred Stephen Smith co-founder at Rainforest QA. Good, that's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Fred, absolutely fantastic to have you on the official Sasta podcast today. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Harry. Now, I'd like to get things started today by hearing a bit about you and how you came to be the founder and CEO of Rainforest QA. Um, do you want the short version or the long version? <laughs> Let's go for the three to four minute version. I don't know where that fits into the grand scheme. <laughs> okay, three to four minute version. Well, I, I grew up in England, like you, Harry. I was brought up with relatively traditional ideas of like, choose your passion or choose like wealth. And those are two separate paths that you go down. And don't be so arrogant as to think that you can get both. And so... I was kind of in the mindset of like, okay, I'm going to go and be an investment banker and I'm going to fly around in a private jet and like have a sweet pinstripe suit. I chose the wealth route. Doing an internship just before university, I was living in Berlin with my then girlfriend and her dad was a lawyer for uh, M&A for technology companies. Through that, he knew a uh, really young entrepreneur who'd started um, the first gaming cheat site, uh, which is sold to one of the big German media groups for you know, 100 million euros or something like that. It was one of the early European kind of software exits. And so he got me an internship kind of assisting that guy. That kind of opened my eyes to the the notion that, oh, actually, you can kind of combine passion and wealth <laughs> and you can do something that isn't shit and is actually fun, but you can also have the potential for massive gains at some point. That kind of opened my eyes to the world of startups, and, I, and that was when I was 18, so it was about 10 years ago now. And this was before the whole startup mania, you know, before the movie The Social Network, before everyone had an app idea. This was like, you know, back in the day when the internet was like a little hobby, nerdy thing, and e-commerce was just getting started. And so fast forward to when I graduate, I decided to move to Berlin, start a company, and see if I could do the startup thing. And that company was horrifically unsuccessful. The startup failed, but... Uh, I learned a lot, and through a few twists and turns, me and my co-founder, Russ, we ended up applying to YC at the beginning of 2012, and miraculously, they accepted us. That's pretty much how we got started. That's how 
I became the CEO of Rainforest. That's a that's a brilliant lead into my question because I think it was at YC with Rainforest when you sent out the the kind of famous email. Uh, what would you pay a thousand dollars per month for to all the other fellow YC founders? Am I right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So 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 let's talk about that. Actually, no, I want to talk about the pricing there because now you charge. Am I right in saying a starting price of ten thousand dollars? Yeah, ten thousand a month. That's so, right, why did yeah. you decide to go upstream from the original one thousand dollars? And kind of one of the benefits and challenges <laughs> of this, other than obviously the nine thousand dollars that you get extra. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think that most most early stage companies are started by basically product nerds, and usually the founders are like kind of product design and engineering focused. And so uh, that's the case for me and Russ, my co-founder. And so, you know, those kind of people, people like us, we have no fucking idea what like an enterprise, like IT buyer thinks like, you know, the most I've ever paid for software is like $10 a month, you know, like my Spotify subscription. So <laughs> like the, the notion of charging a thousand or 10,000 or whatever dollars for software that you built is so absurd. And so for that reason, everyone underprices their software. And so when you start out, you pick something that seems really high, but like manageable. And for us, that was $1,000 a month. And that already seemed ridiculous. And then as the company gets a bit more mature, as you get more customers, you start to realize, oh, hold on, this is actually really cheap. And we're probably actually shooting ourselves in the foot by, by you know, having the price too low. Basically, what I've seen the standard thing is like, okay, as you get a bit more confident and as you understand a bit more about your buyer, you start to increase the price. And that was the case for us. We doubled our price. I think, you know, three, four, five times in a row over the last 18 months. And that was basically us understanding like, oh, okay, this is the value of Rainforest to the customer. You know, we basically took a very simple approach, which was that if a customer didn't buy Rainforest, they would have to hire at least one full-time QA person. And that full-time QA person would cost them at least 100 grand a year. So we should probably price around that. That's my most common piece of advice when young entrepreneurs come and chat to me is like, okay, you don't understand the people that are buying your software. Like taking a wild guess, it's very likely that you've underpriced by, you know, at least one order of magnitude. Um, and so what are the challenges then when increasing the price kind of incrementally like you have done? Is there friction against it or does it go back to that kind of consumer psychology that the more you pay, the more devoted a customer you get? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, at least in our case, um, the the few kind of variables at play were that uh, we had not much competition. So because we don't have much competition, we get to kind of set the price rather than having to look at what our competitors do and price equivalently, right? So, you know, we're lucky in that regard because if we were in a crowded market, we wouldn't have had the freedom to just define what we thought Rainforest was worth. Um, the other key principle there is that you want to always grandfather in existing customers, right? So never screw a customer. Like if they, if they signed a certain contract, you need to honor that contract forever unless they want to change their plan, in which case they can move on to the new pricing. So because of that, you don't get a ton of resistance from existing customers. And then the nice thing with changing the price is that if you have, um, you know, if you're selling your software, then there's a very quick feedback loop, actually, you know, so you go out and you say, this is the new price in the next demo call you do. And either people are like, what the fuck? Or they're like, oh, okay, that's fine. And so, you know, <laughs> each time we doubled the price, 
the new calls we had, the person was like, oh, okay, that's fine. And so each time we realized like, okay, this is probably a good thing to do. Yeah, that's, that's kind of like the process of how we did it. So it really wasn't very painful. I would say though that I've seen friends companies who have, you know, the VP sales or whatever has said like, oh, maybe we should increase the price. And then the CEO is like, okay, now let's do like six months of research to figure it out. And, you know, we are much more, um, you know, quick and dirty than that. Like my VP sales file and he just came to me and said, hey, I think we could increase the price. And I was like, okay, let's try it. And I literally shipped the change like right there and then to the website. So can, so, you, can you A-B test the price? You can. I mean, it depends, right? Like if you have enough traffic to your pricing page, if you have self-serve sign up, if, if you have meaningful numbers of people going through, then you can totally test it. For us, we don't get enough, like because we're relatively enterprise, we don't get enough um, traffic to our site to be able to really meaningfully test the price. And so our A-B test is like, you know, the control version is the current price model and how customers react to that. And the B version is like the new price that we set, you know, so we don't, we don't do it in any rigorous way, to be honest. And, and kind of one common association though with going upstream is, is as you said there about the sales team, the lengthening of the sales cycle, uh, yeah. you have more red tape, more complex deals, etc. Uh, so yeah. how do you look to streamline the sales process then and remove the obstacles that are traditionally um, put in place when you do have this upstream movement? Yeah, well, I think uh, one thing I would clarify is that it, we haven't really moved that much up market, right? Like our our customers are still basically the same profile. Our, our qualification profile right now is is fifty to two hundred people companies, and that's been pretty much the same for the last year and a half. The increase in price has not been reflected by equivalent move up market, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that's really important to understand, right? Is that like each segment of the market that you sell to is basically like selling a brand new product. And so what I would suggest and what, you know, our investors and especially Jason has consistently kind of like hammered down on is that you basically want to control as many variables as possible. And so what we've done is we've basically kept the product the same. We've kept the customer segmentation the same. So we're still selling to the SMB and startup market, um, but we've increased the price vastly. <laughs> so we, we haven't actually gone into the enterprise yet. And so, you know, that's one of the really interesting things about Rainforest, at least if you're a SaaS nerd is that we get kind of like an enterprise-type price point, you know, 120 grand a year, but our, our customers are actually relatively early-stage small companies still. So we've been really lucky in that we have, you know, the short sales cycle, like we don't have to go on-site, we don't have to, you know, really provide a lot of assets, we don't have to really do any customization, and we get this very high price point. So, you know, we kind of lucked into that, but if you can design around that, you'll be in an amazing place because usually you have that trade-off of like more cash equals way more time invested in getting a customer. Often with the increase in pricing, we hear increases in personalization. As you said that you, ha- yeah. you haven't had to do such customization. Have you had to do excessive increases on the customer service and support side? Yeah, definitely. So our team is, is a customer success team. And so these guys are like a hybrid between account managers and kind of solution architects and customer support. And so they, they kind of own the customer experience and they really help define and understand what success means for each customer and make sure that that customer becomes successful. Because at a certain price point, right, you, your customer expects 
for this to work. It's no longer like, okay, let's throw some dollars at that and see if it's cool. It's like, no, we're investing $120,000 in this. And like, it has to fucking work. Um, because of that price point, you know, as you said a bit earlier, customers take it much more seriously. And a big, a big part of us increasing the price, frankly, was that we realized that a real challenge within Rainforest was the kind of cultural change that the customer needed to go through in order to adopt kind of like the modern QA strategies that, that Rainforest enables. Because of that, because that cultural change has to happen at the customer, we kind of realized like, okay, we need to actually have people on our side who are helping explain and move the customer in the right direction. Um, and eventually we'll hopefully do that through the product but in the mean like today we do that with our customer success managers i actually, ha I actually have mark organ on from influitive the customer oh success. yeah yeah and he yeah, said yeah, yeah. as kind of a category creator himself with with influitive uh, he said that he has to be the cmo of the space would you say yes. with rainforest qa that you have to be the cmo of the space kind of educating on the the benefits and the inherent additions that it can provide to people's businesses yeah totally i do um, and, and to be honest, we haven't really, we haven't really delivered on that yet. <laughs> um, that's one of the kind of key things about defining a new category is that you, you have the opportunity to say, this is how you do it well. Um, and it, especially in the world of QA, that's sorely missing. You know, you go to, you go to, to kind of VPNs and CTOs and ask them, you know, what do you want from, uh, you know, your continuous delivery system or your, uh, your source code, uh, version versioning system, and they'll give you a very granular list of exactly what they want. If you go and ask them, what do you want from your QA process? They'll be like, uh, so there, there's like a very low level of knowledge in the industry around how to do great QA. And so, yeah, for, for companies like ours, that provides an awesome, awesome opportunity. And, you know, I would encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast, who's thinking of starting a, a B2B SaaS company, don't go into a crowded market. You know, like if you, if you can go into a market that's not crowded and ideally has no real competition, but where there's a real pain point and there's still a bunch of these kind of problems left. Um, if you can do that, then you just have this massive, massive head start in terms of being able to experiment, you know, set prices, define terms, educate the market. Like you have such a better potential as a business than if you're going in and saying, okay, from day one, we need to basically compete on features and price and everything else with these existing incumbents. So, uh, yeah, I, I would I would never do that, having had the, this experience. I, I think choosing the market is something that's incredibly important. And, you know, like today, right, like, I guess, marketing automation and sales automation, these are the two kind of, like, hot topics in SaaS. And for me, that's just, like, fucking dreadful. Like, how, like, it's like, making a photo sharing app, right? Like even if your app is amazing, you're still kind of fucked because you're connecting <laughs> with Instagram and Snapchat and Twitter and Facebook, right? And so I think it's kind of the same thing. Like if you're going into competition as a three-person company with Salesforce, like I'm not going to invest in you as a VC. And I, I don't think you should spend your time on that. You know, anyway, that's a little bit tangential. But. No, no, I mean, I'm intrigued though as to kind of how then you look to to educate with content in, in terms of what, how much of content creation is a part of your process with Rainforest QA in terms of educating your target market. Yeah, I mean, basically, what we do is we 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 ask the customer success managers what are the what are the things that you repeat to every customer, and so as soon as they realize that they're repeating some message or other, we'll put it into asynchronous form, right? So we'll put it into documentation or we'll make a video. We'll do various things like that, um, so that 
they don't have to explain that, you know, kind of one-on-one again, and, and people can kind of go and learn it themselves. So that's kind of the process that we do. And then, of course, on the marketing side, you know, like everybody, we, we are pumping out content which is relevant to our buyer and which we hope can, you know, at the very least, you know, give people some, some good ideas and, and at best make them think, oh, fuck, Rainforest knows what they're talking about and maybe I should sign up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's it's pretty important part of, of what we do. And I think, you know, if you look at kind of B2B SaaS today, uh, pretty much every single company is, is doing some sort of content play. Um, <laughs> Who do you think is doing it best? Is there anyone you really admire? Yeah, I mean, HubSpot is the kind of canonical one, right? Like Darmesh and, and the homies there, they they kind of um, just like just went crazy um, on the content side. I guess uh, Hiten um, and uh, the Kissmetrics guys, you know, that's that's also a very good example. I think that dude Rand. Uh, Rand Fishkin at Moz, he has yep. really great content as well. You know, just basically when you search like how do I X and you have a very authoritative, informative blog post that is hosted on a company's website, like you are going to associate that company from now on with like answers to how you do X, right? Mm-hmm. And I think each of those, each of those companies does that brilliantly. And I want to talk about building out the sales team now and, and how you've gone about it with Rainforest QA. We talk about kind of building out a content funnel there. So how did yeah. you look to build out the sales team? And what did you really look for in, in both sales reps and head of sales? Obviously very different roles. So how did you hire differently for those two roles? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is that don't don't build any sales team until you've sold a bunch of the software yourself. Right? How, mu- and- how much is a bunch? Is this for you? What was the product? <laughs> I know that's horrible of me to ask, but what was the no, product? No, no, that's fine. What was the product market fit moment for you when you realized that you know ideas at the wall? This was the one that was going to stick. Um, honestly, it was when we had our first out of network customer. Right. So our first, you know, ten or so customers were all YC companies, and they weren't all in our batch, but because they were I see you have this kind of kind of shared trust, right? Which makes the sale a bit easier and and makes the signal a little bit lower. And so we got our first non-friendly customer, uh, surprisingly enough, kind of like women's fashion website, um, and uh, based in San Francisco. And that was the moment when I realized, like, oh shit, these guys are willing to pay us thirty grand a year for this like piece of software that me and my friend wrote in our apartment. Um, <laughs> and so that was when I realized, like, oh okay, now we probably have some product market fit. To go back to to the other question, you know, then basically I sold maybe the first 30 or 40 customers um, and we got to about $300,000 of ARR um, before I realized like, okay, I'm really terrible at sales. Uh, Like this is not something that's fun. I need someone else to run this so I can do things that I'm actually good at. Um, And so that's when we started down the road of kind of building a sales team. Would you say that was a good time to to hire your first uh, sales wrap at 300 ARR? I mean, it's an interesting one, right? Like, I think, you know... It, Do you think it, you would have been faster out the block hiring earlier if you were... I'm sure this is wrong, but if you were as bad as you suggest? <laughs> <laughs> Almost certainly, yeah. Almost certainly. But the thing is, as well, you know, I've seen time and time again that the more time 
an effort you invest into a particular section, like part of the company as the kind of CEO or the founder, the better that part of the company does, right? And so like with marketing, we really fucked it up in the early days because me and my co-founder, Russ, we were just doing marketing. And then at some point we hired a marketing person and we were like, okay, thank God we never have to do that again. And we literally just didn't think about marketing until like four months later when we realized, fuck, our marketing sucks and we have to fire our head of marketing. Um, and, and so is that, know, a, just, is that a bad head of marketing though? Or is that you guys stepping away too much? Um, it's both. You, you discover whether someone's good or not much earlier if you spend a lot of time with them, right? And, and also the person has much more chance of success if you spend a lot of time with them. And this is actually something that Jason taught me. And, and it's very counterintuitive, right? Which is that you want to spend the most time with your highest performers and you want to spend the least time with your worst performers. And, and that's really counterintuitive because we're brought up, especially in the kind of education system, like the people who are the shittest get the most attention, right? Um, Definitely put that friend, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm not a teacher, but the, um, <laughs> but actually that doesn't really make sense in the startup world because people are either going to make themselves successful or they're not. And if they have that DNA to make themselves successful, then you want to spend a ton of time and energy with them, um, like really investing in them and making them even more successful. And so I would say that bringing it back to the question, we did that on the sales side because I knew so much about how to sell to our customer that when we brought in our first kind of serious salesperson who ended up being our VP sales, he was able to kind of like really get an incredible head start because I had sold so much rainforest and I kind of like had the playbook in my mind, right? And so he was able to come in and say, all right, these are the kind of like processes and, and documents we need to create. I'll like extract all this information, which is just living in your brain, put it into some kind of formalized process, and then let's start hiring salespeople. It worked so, for us. So what did that hiring uh, process look like though for you when, you know, you were, you were a first time founder with rainforest, yeah. weren't you? Yeah. So how did you look to go about hiring the right sales team without having done it before well the first thing is like we had three full starts right so i i hired our first salesperson i guess middle of 2014 and we went through three first salespeople in a row before we found Farlin, who became our first salesperson. <laughs> so calling him the first salesperson is maybe a little bit like rewriting history. Um, he's the first salesperson that kind of stuck. And so he was actually the fourth salesperson we hired, and we fired the first three successively. So right? what, did, what did you learn from those um, ones that didn't stick? Two of them were just the wrong profile. So two of them, they were SEs, right, sales engineers from larger companies. One was from Twilio. One was from, I want to say, Cisco. And, you know, the thing with those people is, like, a sales engineer is not going to build your sales team from scratch, right? And, like, that's obvious to probably everyone listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, wasn't obvious to me. <laughs> and so we made that mistake twice in a row. And then the next person we hired was a really, really, really good enterprise sales guy but he was not the kind of creative salesperson, right? He was not the person to create the process. He was the person to run the process. And so he didn't work out because of that. And so, you know, the, the key thing with, with doing the first time company is you have to be willing to fire quickly because you're going to make so many hiring mistakes, right? You're going to make so many hiring mistakes that if you're not willing to fire quickly, your company is going to very quickly get bogged down in basically the wrong people. And so, you know, this is something that I've seen really differentiate the kind of successful companies two, three, four years in from the unsuccessful companies is the ones who are willing to cut the 
fat from the company, frankly. And it's not something that as a society we like to talk about. You know, we see kind of like firing, uh, just like we see breakups as failure, right? But I see it differently. I see it as, okay, like for example, when you break up with somebody that you're in a romantic relationship with, this is actually a positive thing because you both realized you're not supposed to be together and now you can go and find someone that you are supposed to be with. Um, and honestly, I see, I see that th- that is exactly the same with a company, right? We all see like, oh, the person who got let go, they failed and so the whole thing failed and so everything is bad for me it's like no this is amazing you actually now understand a bit more about what you're good at and what you should do and so for example both of those early salespeople who we let go you know it was never contentious we had great relationships and you know i advised both of them in the exit interview like i don't think sales is really your thing i think you should focus on something else and so one of them went on to be a product manager and one of them went on to be a um uh, a customer success manager right so i think that firing piece is, is really super crucial um and that's like a very long non-answer to your question but to be honest i think you basically have to experiment and figure it out for yourself and if it's your first time around no matter how many blog posts you read no matter how much of jason's like intelligence you can soak up through sasta you know no matter how much kind of like thinking you put into it you're going to get things wrong you know and so the key thing is to recognize when the person is the wrong fit for the role and and you know try again basically mm-hmm. and so and that was our approach yeah exactly and that was our approach and that's how we ended up with Farlin. um i would say on the vp sales front or on your first salesperson what you really want to focus on is you want someone who's experienced right so someone who's done this job before and that's really important because the tendency for a startup and we have this as well, is to hire people that seem like us, right? Young, hungry, intelligent, inexperienced. Um, That works in some areas of the company. In sales, it doesn't, right? Because sales is very much a, a art, and you have to have learned that art. And you learn the art and the science of sales in big companies who have big sales teams with predefined processes and a lot of training and career progression, right? And do, you, so, do you think sales is still an art, though, with the integration of data in such a heavy way? Uh, do you oh, think yeah. it's, you still think it is the art? Oh, yeah, dude. You just have to listen to your sales call to realize that, right? Like, you know, if you look at it, we have five reps today. If you like each of them has completely different style on the phone, each of them focuses on completely different things. Each of them has very different relationships with their customers. And, you know, you can kind of see that each of them is, is kind of like has their own style that they've developed over the, their lifetime, you know. And, and the thing is, is that sales is such an interesting thing because it seems like it should be so simple. But actually, it's so complicated, right? Like especially once you start getting into, um, you know, multiple stakeholders on, on the customer side. But I also think, you know, something I realized recently um, when we were kind of reviewing our reps' performance in Q2, right? Like, for example, one of our reps, who will obviously remain nameless, you know, he had an absolutely massive Q1, right? Like, he almost did double his quota in Q1. He absolutely smashed it. And Q2 was terrible for him. Like, he almost closed no business in the first two months of Q2. And so, you know, we were kind of thinking about the psychology of that. And I was realizing, like, this is why salespeople get paid the big money. This is why sales is a hard thing right? Because managing your own psychology, much like an athlete having to manage their psychology, right? When they keep missing their threes or they keep throwing bad balls or whatever the fuck, you know, the, like, 
it's all about maintaining confidence. And so that's why the salesperson is, is such a kind of specialized animal because they have to be able to take that constant rejection and not get disheartened and not think it's them and keep being confident and keep selling. You know, so how do you, as the, how do you then as the founder and, and, and their manager look to stabilize their confidence and their kind of uh, sales ability into these uh, unlike ebbs and flows? <laughs> well, luckily, I'm not their manager. Like, luckily for them and for me. So, our VP sales manages all our salespeople. And so, um, he's a seasoned, experienced sales manager. And so, he does it. Um, but, you know, basically, it's a mixture of helping them learn from everyone else, of keeping their spirits up when they seem to get a bit downbeat, and of making sure that they understand that, like, this is sales is about following the process. And you're going to have up months and down months. But the key thing is to be patient and keep following this process. And we normally do 60 seconds fast in the middle, but Fred, obviously two Brits just can't stop talking to each other. Uh, so, so we're going to do it at the end today. Uh, so are you ready to dive into the 60 seconds faster? Cool. Yeah, sure. So who took the biggest bets and risks on you in your career? Um, Jason. Yeah. How did sure you guys meet? Um, we met through Kyle Wilde, who's the okay. CEO of Keen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, how impactful was YC on the trajectory of Rainforest? Uh, 100% impactful. <laughs> in terms of fundraising, like, in terms of product development, hiring? I mean, all of the above, frankly. Like, re- like Rainforest would not be a company today and would be dead if we hadn't gone into IC. Like, we'd probably be doing something else. Favorite SaaS material? Jason and Aaron's recent book was really great. What element of the journey have you found most challenging? The transition from uh, founder to CEO. How have you managed that? <laughs> Uh, some would say badly. Basically trying to depersonalize it and, and, and understand, you know, very critically and objectively what my weaknesses are, what the weaknesses of the team are and, and work aggressively to improve those. Um, and move out of the mindset of this is all work and problems for me to solve and move into the mindset of your job is to assemble a team to solve the problems that you perceive. Um, and, and that sounds simple and it's actually very fucking hard. And most people don't make that transition ultimately. What criteria did you use when, when assessing investors? Do we like them um, in the sense of do they fit the values of the company? Do we feel like we trust them? There's a lot of really good high value, like, you know, like high profile investors that just seem real fucking shady when you meet them. Um, and so that was like a non-starter for us. Um, and then what's their brand? You know, is their brand strong? Do they, do we stand to benefit from their brand or are they going to benefit from our brand? Um, those are how we think, that's how we think about it. Well, Fred, it's been such a pleasure to have a fellow Brit on the show. It really has. <laughs> uh, it's a rarity for me, um, but seriously, yeah. such a pleasure. And I'm so grateful to you for giving up the time. My pleasure, Harry. We've got to stick together. I think that was probably one of the most entertaining and fun Sasta episodes we've ever had on the show, and I so hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and a huge thank you to Fred for giving up his time today. Coming on the show, dropping a few F-bombs, that really was kind of him, so we can now change the explicit rating on iTunes. Thanks for that, Fred. Um, but no, really very kind of him, and amazing to hear the journey of Rainforest QA and the incredible journey that lies ahead. And if you're loving all things Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hdebbings, or you can follow the main man Jason Lemkin on Twitter, at Jason LK, or even head over to the home of Sasta on Sasta.com, S-A-A-S-T-R.com. As always, we so appreciate your support and look very forward to bringing you Friday's episode with a good friend of mine, Cindy Padnos at Illuminate VC.